Morning, everyone. Glad you're with us. We are following three big stories breaking overnight. There is a new designee to be House Speaker. Overnight, Republicans nominated Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson. This morning, many more are sounding much more optimistic than they have in the past three weeks ahead of an expected vote at noon. And Israel says no to a ceasefire, <laughs> continuing bombardment of Gaza overnight. This morning, we're learning new information about how the U.S. is urging caution, looking at lessons learned from Iraq. Also, former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows reportedly strikes a deal with federal prosecutors. ABC News reporting he's offering up testimony about the former president's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in exchange for immunity. And we start with the breaking news. A new name could soon hang over the House Speaker's office. You see it right there. Kevin McCarthy's name just taken down last night, according to our Hill team. We're now talking about Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, who the House Republicans have chosen as their fourth speaker designee. Democracy is messy sometimes, but it is our system. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority is united. Is united. Seems like he's got momentum behind him ahead of a noon vote today. Lauren Fox joins us now. We also have our Casey Hunt with us. Lauren, what happened overnight? Yeah, obviously, there was an abrupt change of plans last night. They were expecting to come back this morning and have a vote behind closed doors to see if Mike Johnson could get the 217 votes that he needed. They ended up doing that in the room. And the expectation is he's going to go to the floor today at noon, try to become the Speaker of the House after more than three weeks now since Kevin McCarthy was ousted. Can he be that consensus candidate? All signs are pointing to the fact that he likely could be, but obviously we have to wait until noon because as we've seen time and time again, a lot can change in just a couple of hours. But obviously things moving very quickly yesterday. You had Tom Emmer, who was temporarily the speaker designee, only to then bow out of the race when it became clear after several hours of conversations with the holdouts that he couldn't get there. Now Mike Johnson is the guy who has that speaker designee title. He's going to head to the floor again at noon. That is when we could see this resolve. Again, a lot can change, but they're headed to the floor, yeah. uh, Lauren, stay with us. Let's also bring in CNN Chief National Affairs uh, Analyst and anchor of Early Start, Casey Hunt. Seems like overnight there's a lot of uh, momentum behind him. Hope. What do we need to know about Mike Johnson <laughs> and does he pull this off? Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. I'm aware right? I mean, hope is not a strategy, by the way. <laughs> I'm aware of that. Hope is not a strategy. Uh, you are correct. But it does seem, and I think, you know, you could tell it, it, behind him, as, as you heard kind of the cheers for him and the way he was talking in that, in that soundbite that you yeah. played, that the mood around him right now, I think, is different. And uh, if you listen to some of the members of Congress who were talking to our, uh, to Lauren and Manu and, and those who were on the Hill late last night, you heard both Matt Gates on the one side, right? like the guy that took out Kevin McCarthy. And then on the other side, Mike Lawler, Biden district, New Yorker, who really led um, you know, the opposition to Jim Jordan. Um, they're actually singing off the same hymnal. I'm told that we can actually show everybody what they both had to say. Take a look. Mike is the right guy. He's an inspirational leader. I'm so excited to go elect him Speaker of the House. Now, obviously, I did not support the removal of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I, I think it was... Uh, Know, arguably the stupidest move ever made in politics, uh, but we have to move forward. And so we're going to rally around uh, Mike Johnson. The Republicans, we're back. Uh, our agenda is going to be back on track. 
uh, we are unified and uh, we are, I think we're happy to be where we are. So when you have those two saying the exact same thing, you know that you've fixed at least a lot of the problems that exist here. And I do think there really is this sense of exhaustion that has set in. It's like, we got to fix this. Uh, And Mike Johnson, you know, quite frankly, doesn't have uh, like a a hell no conference right now. And I think without that, his path is the smoothest that we have seen so far. Mm -hmm. Again, to Lauren's point. We shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> That's the bar, by the way, not having a hell no conference. Yeah, which is, you know, big win, I guess, to some degree. Um, Lauren, there were, I think, 20-plus absences last night. Um, and, and I think the big question that continues to come to mind, to Casey's point, there's, it's not like a hell no conference with him. A lot of people don't know him that well. He's affable. People like him generally within the conference. He's a social conservative, rock rib conservative to some degree. But he also led the House Republican efforts to join the Texas lawsuit to try and overturn the 2020 election, talked to Trump constantly about that, used his personal email to try and urge and whip lawmakers to get behind that lawsuit that was thrown out by the Supreme Court. Does that have any effect at all? Well, I think for a lot of House Republicans, that actually was Tom Emmer's position on supporting the election results was the death knell in his ability to become the speaker. So I'm not actually sure that Johnson's position there is going to be a detractor for him with a lot of House Republicans. Again, Phil, I just want to urge that we have to wait and see because so much can change when they go to the floor today at noon. You know, one of the other major questions I have about Mike Johnson is where does he stand on policy? Where does he stand on the fact that there's going to be a government shutdown on November 17th if they don't pass a government funding bill. And likely he's going to need some Democratic support to get that across the finish line, given the fact he's got to work with the Democratic-controlled U.S. Senate. So I think there's a lot of questions. Some reporters were trying to press him yesterday if he supported more aid for Ukraine and Israel. And he said that this was not a moment to talk about policy. But if he becomes the speaker today, just shortly after noon, he's not going to have much time to figure out on the job what the next steps are, because that government funding deadline is coming down very, very quickly. And it's going to be here before he really knows it. And Casey, could you speak to that point? Phil just pointed out sort of his conservative bona fides, but also is he going to work with Democrats on a plan most urgently to, you know, pass funding for Ukraine and Israel, but also keep the government running here? Well, don't forget that doing that, working with Democrats to keep the government open, is what threw Kevin McCarthy out of a job. So the bottom line is he has to do it. There's not really an option Um, There are members of his conference who will not vote to do those things, um, and he's going to need Democratic votes to get it across the finish line. And if he does get the job, he's going to be the most inexperienced speaker, really, in modern memory. Um, And that experience is what you need when you are dealing with really tough situations like what Lauren uh, laid out here. So he has been, if you you look in, in... the archives to kind of get a sense of how he talks about people. And, you know, Phil, you called him affable. I think that's a really good way. It's a really good word for him. And he actually has been more affable towards Democrats, towards people like Nancy Pelosi than has been recently accepted as, uh, you know, how to how to handle yourself if you're a conservative leading, uh, you know, the the contentious right wing, especially in the House of Representatives. Um, there is kind of this sense that he is willing to uh, be Um, you know, magnanimous in terms of how he talks to and about uh, his opponents. So there may be some hope there, uh, but there has been no one who has been able to successfully govern this conference in a significant way in recent years. I mean, John Boehner bailed on it, you know, said, I'm out abruptly one day. 
Paul Ryan resigned from Congress after trying to do the job. We saw Kevin McCarthy get thrown out. Now it's taken them three weeks to try to find somebody new. And while they seem to be pretty happy with themselves right now, none of these fundamental dynamics are changing. And they've got 23 days to fund the government, $105 billion emergency supplemental to fund Israel and Ukraine currently on the table. Um, let's hope affable works. <laughs> to some degree, Lauren Fox, Casey Hunt, another busy day ahead. Thanks, guys. Thanks, and in our next hour, we're going to talk with Congressman Tim Burchett. He was one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy from his speakership three weeks ago. And we're also going to be talking with the top Democrat in the House, House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Well, overnight, Israel rejecting calls for a ceasefire and launching large-scale strikes on Gaza. We're live on the ground in Tel Aviv with the latest. Also, former members of Donald Trump's inner circle appear to be turning on him under legal heat. We'll talk about that ahead. Well, new this morning, Israel is rejecting calls from some nations for a ceasefire and launching large-scale strikes on Gaza overnight. This is video now of a Palestinian man asking about his wife while buried in rubble. Explosions can be heard in the background and the bombardment coming just hours after the head of the United Nations called Israel's airstrikes, quote, collective punishment of the Palestinian people and demanded an immediate ceasefire at a very contentious Security Council meeting yesterday. Listen to this. The relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties, and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. Those words led to a sharp response from Israeli officials. Meanwhile, the White House is pushing for, quote, humanitarian pauses, but not a complete ceasefire. We want to see all measure of protection for civilians and and uh, and, and pauses in an operation is, is a tool and a tactic that can do that for temporary pe periods of time. So does that, that is not the same as saying a ceasefire. Again, right now, we believe a ceasefire benefits Hamas. And we're now learning more about how Hamas may have been able to plan its huge surprise attack on October 7th and massacre without Israel even knowing. Sources tell CNN intelligence shared with the U.S. suggests a small cell of Hamas operatives used a network of phone lines in the underground tunnels beneath Gaza to communicate and plan the attack for more than two years. The humanitarian crisis is deepening for the roughly two million civilians that are trapped inside of the war zone in Gaza. The United Nations Relief Agency inside of Gaza says it will need to shut down operations today if they do not get more fuel. Let's go to Aaron Burnett. She joins us live from Tel Aviv. I mean, this has been the key focus of the last 24 hours. Aaron has been fuel. And the Israeli government has been adamant, absolutely not. We believe it falls into the hands of Hamas. But the hospitals are literally closing because of no fuel. Uh, they, they are. And, you know, when we've spoken to doctors, some doctors, you know, are even able to basically essentially uh, record, uh, hear some explosions in the background, are able to record what they're hearing. And you hear explosions that we've even been able to geolocate happening at that, around that exact same time near that hospital. So the situations there uh, is, is obviously dire from a medical perspective. Um, that's the reality on the ground there. They're saying that they need more fuel to even function. Obviously, as you know, operating without morphine, uh, the situation dire. We also have uh, now images of Egypt using these giant cement slabs, Phil and Poppy, that they've been uh, putting back in front of that Rafa crossing that they say they can lift when they need to to let aid in. Uh, but nonetheless, the images, the power of such massive concrete blocking that is not lost on anyone.
You know, Aaron, I remain struck by what we heard from Johannes Lipschitz yesterday, one of the hostages who was released, about her frustrations about how little they seemed to know in terms of the IDF, in terms of Shin Bet, even though there were signs. The, the new reporting we have on Hamas's extensive planning for this attack is staggering it's in its entirety. It absolutely is. And, you know, you heard from Yocheved Lipschitz, her frustration. I was actually uh, spent about 45 minutes with her grandson last night, and he shared that incredible frustration, you know, that, that why would his grandmother and all of these innocent people have been put in such a horrific situation because of this, uh, this failure? And the reporting, you know, Pamela Brown saying that, that they were using landlines, they were deep underground, but that then when they were actually doing the preparations above ground, right? Like actually the dry runs that Israel saw it and just didn't recognize it for what it is, thought it was more of the same. So it's sort of sometimes that that something is staring you in the face and you don't necessarily recognize what it is. Uh, But, you know, we've seen the battle plans. I've seen them from two of the kibbutz that were found on the Hamas shoulders. They are dated a year before. They're extremely specific. Uh, But the landlines part, the numbers are actually in the documents. And you see, you know, sort of an X and an extension almost like sort of like a corporate office type of thing. It is truly staggering. Uh, and Pamela's reporting showing that they were doing this meetings in person, deep underground, and keeping it to just a few people for so long. And there is also new reporting uh, today that says American military officials are trying to are trying to use lessons that the United States learned with its own serious failures in the Iraq war to help Israeli forces game out different strategies to defeat Hamas in obviously an incredibly densely populated urban environment. Uh, the U.S. is trying to steer Israel away from endangering hostages and civilians with a full-scale ground assault in Gaza and instead urging them to use a combination of precision airstrikes, which they have been doing several overnight. Another commander, two more cabinet, every single day. Uh, Hamas uh, commanders killed in these precision strikes. But the U.S. wants more of that in special operations raids. And our Natasha Bertrand joins us now. So, Natasha, what are you learning about what the U.S. is specifically pushing? It's obviously very consistent with what Israel's been doing so far. But is Israel changing its longer term plans or strategy based on this? Well, a Western source did tell us, Aaron, that the Israelis are being cautious in how they plan their next moves because they don't necessarily want to lose any moral high ground uh, amongst the international community. You could argue that that it is a little too late for that. Uh, Certainly critics have already. But a senior Israeli official also acknowledged to us that, look, we appreciate uh, what the U.S. is advising of us because, of course, the U.S. has a lot of experience fighting insurgents in Iraq, including in Fallujah and Mosul uh, more recently. And so they they understand what the U.S. is trying to communicate to them. But still, the sentiment across the U.S. government is that Israel is likely to move forward with a large-scale ground invasion. And that is something that the Biden administration and the U.S. and these military advisors are trying to discourage. And so to yeah. that end, they have sent these military advisors over to Israel including three-star Marine Corps General uh, James Glynn, who has so much experience leading troops during that battle for Fallujah, which was extremely bloody, door-to-door, street-to-street fighting. And basically, he is telling the Israelis, this is not the kind of strategy that you want to deploy uh, in Gaza. It is very difficult. It is bloody. And of course, it, it you know, learn from our mistakes, uh, essentially. And so the U.S. now yeah. is saying, look, you don't want to go into this without a fully baked 
strategy. And right now, the U.S. does not see the Israelis as having that. A key part of that strategy, of course, as the U.S. learned from its war on terror, is to have an exit plan. Don't get bogged down and don't uh, engage in a prolonged occupation of the Gaza Strip. The U.S. isn't so sure that Israel's heeding that advice, but they are doing what they can to, to provide it. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly, you know, we, we see with the numbers hundreds of strikes a day and that they're listing the Hamas commanders that they are getting in each one. They, they, they have been doing those precision strikes, obviously, with, with great success. Although thus far, every time we've questioned them, of course, Natasha, they've refused to say how many as a, you know, what percent of Hamas commanders have you killed? What percent of their capacity have you taken out their weaponry? Obviously, the IDF hasn't answered that. Um, but the United States, Natasha, also, you know, you've got these protests around the region. You have rising tensions. And I understand from your reporting that there's been at least 13 attacks on U.S. interests in Iraq and Syria uh, over just the past few days. What do you know about that? Yeah, these attacks by these Iranian proxy militia groups, according to the Pentagon, they have ramped up significantly over the last week. Over a dozen uh, on forces in, U in, the, in Iraq and Syria at U.S. and coalition bases there. And the U.S. is taking this very seriously, and they are surging air defense assets to the region uh, to try to protect uh, the U.S. troops who are based in Iraq and Syria as part of the anti-ISIS coalition there. So they have deployed THAAD missile. They have deployed Patriot batteries. And they're doing everything they can to try to preempt a possible larger escalation of these attacks by, of course, positioning a lot of firepower in the region, including uh, those aircraft uh, carriers. And so something the U.S. is very concerned about, Aaron, but they're taking all the steps they need, they say, to try to prevent any escalation and further harm to troops. Yeah. Natasha, thank you very much with all of her new reporting this morning. Phil and Poppy, back to you in New York. All right, Aaron, stay with us. We'll be coming back to you shortly. But we also want to focus on another major story. Former President Trump's White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, reportedly cooperating with federal investigators in exchange for immunity. That new reporting just ahead. Also this in a New York courtroom, Trump's former attorney and fixer Michael Cohen squaring off against his former boss. The details of that testimony also ahead. Back to the reunion. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In the federal election interference case against Donald Trump, the former president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has been granted immunity by the special counsel, Jack Smith. This is a big deal. We've learned from ABC that he has met several times with Smith's team. 
Meadows allegedly told investigators that he did not believe the election was stolen and talked about this moment on election day. This was November 2020. Listen. Frankly, we did win this election. Meadows specifically refuting that, reportedly telling investigators earlier this year that he believed Trump was being, quote, dishonest when he said that. Kristen Holmes joins us live from Washington. Gosh, this answers a whole lot of questions and raises a number of questions about so many people have been wondering, what about Mark Meadows? We haven't heard a lot from Mark Meadows. What about Mark Meadows? Well, now we know who he's been talking to. Yeah, Poppy, this has been a big question. It's been a big question in Trump's orbit as well. Now, this just joins a growing number of these deals that are happening in these Trump lawsuits, in these Trump legal perils. And I've talked to a number of sources in Trump's orbit who say they don't really know exactly what this means, but there is a growing concern, particularly when it comes to Mark Meadows. Former President Trump's legal perils growing worse as former allies and associates are striking deals in several different cases. ABC News reports that former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows was granted immunity by special counsel Jack Smith in his investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Federal prosecutors met with Meadows at least three times and focused on his conversations with Trump following the election defeat. Mark Meadows was, as you know, Wolf, Donald Trump's shadow the entire time he was chief of staff, he will know every conversation, every lie, every illegal action that was taken by Donald Trump. And he's going to be able to testify to it. According to ABC News, Meadows told investigators that he did not believe the election was stolen and that Trump was being, quote, dishonest in claiming victory shortly after the polls closed in 2020. CNN has reached out to Meadows' attorney for comment. Trump responding on True Social. Quote, I don't think Mark Meadows would lie about the rigged and stolen 2020 presidential election merely for getting immunity against prosecution, persecution, by deranged prosecutor Jack Smith. And in Fulton County, Georgia, for the third time in one week, a former attorney of Trump's has struck a plea deal with District Attorney Fonnie Willis. I failed to do my due diligence. Appearing in a Georgia courtroom, former Trump campaign lawyer Jenna Ellis pleaded guilty to one felony charge of aiding and abetting false statements, receiving five years of probation and ordered to pay $5,000 in restitution. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. Heck of a reunion. Meanwhile, former Trump attorney Michael Cohen squaring off against his former boss. He's alive trying to get a better deal for himself, but uh, it's not going to work. Sitting just feet away from Trump in a New York courtroom Tuesday, marking the first time the two have been face to face in five years. We're not worried at all about his testimony. Cohen testified in the $250 million civil fraud trial against Trump and his colleagues, alleging repeated fraud by inflating company values to obtain better deals. Cohen says Trump sought false property comparisons to boost the value of his real estate holdings. Trump, he said, quote, was the only one who could accept them. This is not about Donald Trump versus Michael Cohen or Michael Cohen versus Donald Trump. This is about accountability, plain and simple. 
And Poppy, we do expect to see Donald Trump back in court today. But one thing I do want to point out, and I think it's always important to mention when we are talking about Trump's mounting legal issues, while he was in court yesterday, while he was sitting there hearing testimony against him, he was able to help tank House Republican Tom Emmer's speaker bid with a true social post. That just goes to show you that despite, again, all of these mounting legal issues, he still remains incredibly popular within the Republican Party as he seeks another yeah. term in the White House. Totally. With that one post. Uh, Kristen Holmes, mm -hmm. thanks very, very much for the reporting. Can I also just note the person who's now on the path to potentially be speaker was the leading Republican vote behind the effort to overturn the election through the Texas lawsuit. So he so, likely won't get that post from Trump. No, no, no. Trump will definitely be OK with Mike Johnson. But the fact that this is still a pervasive thing, even as you see Jenna Ellis crying in court yeah. because of leading all, all of this type of stuff, it's still so central to what happens in Washington, the Republican Party. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst former federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig. Ellie, I, I want to start by kind of ticking through some of the elements of the ABC reporting. Um, the idea that Meadows reportedly told federal prosecutors under penalty of perjury, perjury they've never seen any evidence of fraud. Is that important here? Yeah, that's a huge change in what we've heard from some of the key insiders. Mark Meadows, to me, if he is fully on board, if he is fully telling the truth, he's the single most important witnesses prosecutors could have. Who's closer to Donald Trump? Who was closer to Donald Trump during those key moments leading up to and during January 6th than Mark Meadows? And if we now have the chief of staff, the person closest to Donald Trump, the person who all the information filters in through to get to the president, and he says, I knew there was no fraud. I knew this was nonsense. That's a huge win for prosecutors. What's also really interesting is that, uh, according to this reporting, Meadows told Jack Smith's team of investigators, he wanted to resign right. because of this stuff. Many times over his concerns that the allegations of fraud were not true, how they were being handled. But he didn't. He, he didn't resign. He kept doing this. And there's even part of the reporting that talks about him not believing some of the stuff in his own book. Yeah, that makes him actually a bit of a problematic witness. First of all, the fact that he, his book is 320 pages. It's filled with lies, according to his own testimony now. And that's a problem. I mean, look, no witness is perfect for prosecutors. But now, if you are going to put Mark Meadows on the stand, he has to say, yes, I lied to the American public for a long time. My book is filled with lies. But now I'm telling the truth. There's ways to deal with that as a prosecutor. You have to explain why this person has now seen the light. But it does make him an imperfect witness, to be sure. Uh, there's a ton more to dig into on this. But can we play the sound from Jen Ellis yesterday that we have? Because I just want to ask Ellie about that. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump. Ellie, I don't mean to have a cold heart. I have zero sympathy for this. And the idea that I'm just a young attorney who was misled by older attorneys who know much more about this. She's in her late 30s. She's right. been an attorney for a long time. She knew all these people. Yeah, you, she's not as young as she seems to be suggested. As you say, she's in her mid-30s. You have a responsibility as an attorney to do your diligence, to do your work. And let's remember... There ought to be a supercut because she was one of the most outspoken, aggressive proponents of the election fraud lie. She was out there all over the airwaves in front of microphones saying this is a fraud. This is the theft of the century. 
She's changed her tune quite a bit, but being charged can do that. It's a really important point. Being someone's attorney and counseling them does not also mean you have to go all over the airwaves and say things like that. Just quickly, this immunity granted to Meadows federally, what does that mean for the Georgia RICO case? So Meadows is in a little bit of a conundrum here because he's worked out a deal federally, it seems. If he's been given immunity, that means DOJ, federal prosecutors, have said, we need your testimony. We're not going to charge you. We're not going to use your testimony against you. And practically, we're not going to charge you. But let's remember, he is a charged defendant in Georgia State Court in Fulton County. To me, this sets the table both ways. For Mark Meadows, he's got to reach a deal now with Fonnie Willis. Both sides are incentivized. If I'm Fonnie Willis, I say, great, you have this deal with DOJ. You're going to testify for them. We need you too. And if you're Mark Meadows, it makes no sense to work out a deal where you're covered federally, but still could be charged in the state. So if I'm Mark Meadows' lawyer, I'm on the phone with Fonnie Willis saying, hey, he's on board with the feds. How are we going to work this out? Remember how you were saying this is not going to be 19 defendants in court? We've already had three pleas. We're down to 15. Keep keep an eye on it. Keep going down. Very much. Also, this back to the crisis in the Middle East. The World Health Organization says six hospitals in Gaza have been forced to shut down because of a lack of fuel. The agency's chief for the West Bank in Gaza joins us next. New satellite images appear to show Egypt sealing off the Gaza border in between aid convoys. Excuse me. So these images are from Tuesday. They show an unbroken shadow of a cement slab wall. And then you can also see a crane in the satellite image, which suggests that Egypt is able to lift the cement slabs to reopen and close the crossing uh, quickly. Obviously, though, to, to use such a powerful thing to block it sends a very very significant message. The images come as eight aid trucks out of the expected 20 entered Gaza yesterday. And a U.N. relief agency says relief operations could shut down at the end of the day today. And obviously, when you say eight out of 20, keep in mind, on a regular day, it would be hundreds of trucks that would be going in. So it's already almost nothing um, that would be going in, even if those were successful. The World Health Organization says six hospitals in Gaza have been forced to shut down because of a lack of fuel to power their generators. And the U.N. says Gaza needs more than 42,000 gallons of fuel every day to power U.N. facilities, hospitals, and other humanitarian aids. So that's their number per day for humanitarian needs, 42,000 gallons per day. Last night, I spoke with Mahmoud Shalabi. He lives in northern Gaza. He's a program manager for medical aid for Palestinians. He's staying there with his three young children. The oldest is only nine. Israeli airstrikes have hit uh, very close to his home. He says the situation there is dire. So you can imagine if no fuel enters Gaza tomorrow, it will be a catastrophe for all parts of Gaza, but specifically for us in the north, as we don't even receive the basic food commodities that have been allowed in whatever have been, you know, brought to Gaza. He says that they need fuel, but Israeli officials say very clearly that that is not happening now. There is actually a huge amount of fuel inside Gaza today, which Hamas has. Now, if you could tell me, give me assurances, guarantees that fuel going into Gaza would only go for civilian purposes, that's fine. But I don't think anyone can give me that guarantee. Joining us now is Dr. Richard Peppercorn, the head of the World Health Organization Office for the West Bank and Gaza, joining me from Jerusalem this morning. And Dr. Dr. Peppercorn, I appreciate your time. So. You heard the advisor there to Prime Minister Netanyahu, Mark Regev, saying that they need to have guarantees that any fuels that would be a fuel that would be allowed to go into Gaza would not go for anything other than humanitarian purposes. Is there any way to make such a guarantee? 
good afternoon. Yes, I think there is. Uh, let me give you an example. WHO, over the last two days, okay. we delivered actually essential medical trauma supplies and essential medicine to seven hospitals all over Gaza, including to Tifa uh, and Aluts, uh, north of Wadi Gaza. So we can do that and we can manage that. We can also bring the fuel there. I want to make the point, so uh, that my team who was accompanying the, our transporter and they season, they season medical doctors, Gazans, they've never seen such scenes before. The, 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 the supplies needed for the operation theater were ripped off the trucks and directly brought into the operation theater. So on the fuel situation, UNRWA is coordinating this. And indeed, like we, we don't have fuel left for, I think, one, one half day or something uh, like that. It's not just fuel for hospitals requirements, but it's also fuel for water desalination plants, for bakery, and of course to run the UNRWA core operations. And uh, so, so I, I mean, it's significant that you're saying you think you can make those guarantees. Obviously, Israel is saying that, that they believe that, that that cannot be done. They say Hamas has already tried, attempted to steal fuel. You said something, though, Dr. Peppercorn, there that I wanted to give you a chance to elaborate on, if you're willing. You said that your teams on the ground have never seen such scenes before. We've heard about operating without morphine. I've spoken to doctors there, and the excruciating exhaustion and pain in their voices is palpable. But can you talk specifically about these scenes that no one has seen before and give people, let us see them. Yeah, and I want to go back to the former question, I think. The UN and the one UN, I think, if we are able to bring those medications and food, etc., to the facilities who need it most, we also are able to bring the fuel to those facilities. Going back to your question, yeah, they've never seen scenes like that uh, uh, before. There's occupancy rates of 150 percent. Within Shifa Hospital, there's about 5,000 IDPs, and on their compound, close to four, uh, totally close to 40,000. Same in Al Uds, uh, 12,000 uh, IDPs. Uh, they have to do operations, uh, operations in the smaller operations on the corridors, etc. They cannot do proper. Uh, uh, yeah, they, there's no, there's a lack of anesthetics. So many of the operations take without uh, anesthetics. And going back to the fuel, they they've, they've expanded uh, the ICU units to 50. Uh, there's there's neonates, etc. And and if there's no fuel, I mean it's a death sentence. It's a death sentence for all those critical uh, critical patients. Yes. A death sentence. All right, Dr. Peppercorn, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And Phil and Poppy, back to you. All right. Thanks, Aaron. We'll be back to you shortly. Sources also telling CNN that American and military officials are using lessons from the Iraq war to try and steer Israel away from a ground incursion in Gaza. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy has said Israel should not repeat the mistakes the U.S. made in the wake of 9-11. He's going to join us live next. And an off-duty pilot accused of attempting to shut down the engines of an Alaskan Airlines plane mid-flight, now denying he had any medication, but mentioned taking psychedelics days before the flight. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Sources tell CNN American military officials are trying to steer Israel away from the type of brutal urban combat the U.S. engaged in during the Iraq war instead of a full-scale ground assault on Gaza. U.S. military advisors are urging precision airstrikes and targeted special operations raids. This message to Israel comes as a key foreign relations voice in the Senate is invoking lessons of another war, Afghanistan. 
Our tactics were often producing more terrorists and insurgents than they were eliminating. We were far too cavalier about civilian casualties and the humanitarian cost of our pursuit of the Taliban, and it ended up simply making the Taliban stronger. That was Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee. He also chairs the subcommittee that focuses on the Middle East. And I'm glad you're with us this morning, Senator. Thank you so much. I also think of your, your tweet where you wrote, if thousands of civilians die in Gaza, terrorist groups will grow stronger and not disappear. Thousands of civilians have already been killed in Gaza. Is it too late? It's it's not too late. Um, it is important that Hamas be held accountable. And I think Israel is trying to figure out how to bring to justice the perpetrators, the organizers of this attack without a ground invasion. Uh, the world is safer if Hamas doesn't get away with this. The United States is less likely to be attacked by terrorists in the future if the organizers of this plot uh, are brought to justice. Um, but a ground invasion of Gaza has the potential to be unending. Um, what we found in Afghanistan is that for every terrorist that we killed, we created two more because of the number of civilian casualties and the way that that provided bulletin board recruiting material to the Taliban. The same could happen inside Gaza. The second problem Israel has is that there's no great solution for who runs Gaza after Hamas. But until you have settled those two questions, how to conduct a ground invasion without causing Hamas to go stronger and what to do in Gaza after Hamas is, is displaced from power, mm -hmm. then I don't think your war planning is done. Um, so I, I you know, agree that, you, that Israel has to think through these questions before they proceed. So it seems what element would be crucial to answering both of those important questions that you pose is time is taking the time to figure out what is next and how to get these innocent civilians out or to safety. And that would require a ceasefire, something that you called for just in 2021 during the escalation of violence then between Israel and Gaza. But the White House is, is not supportive of that. And Netanyahu and these Israeli defense forces say no. What do you say? Is it time for a ceasefire? Well, I, I, I think if, if people had called for a ceasefire, you know, 20 days after 9-11, mm -hmm. um, there wouldn't have been a lot of uh, sympathetic ears in the United States. Uh, a ceasefire in this case, I'm not sure it would be observed by Hamas. It would give them a chance to essentially move equipment and individuals uh, away from harm, give them a chance to rearm. I do think that what Secretary Blinken suggested yesterday is probably key, which is, you know, temporary pauses in uh, operations and airstrikes in order to allow humanitarian assistance in and perhaps to allow the hostages to get out. Um, so that may not qualify as a ceasefire, um, but to stop hostilities for periods of time for humanitarian purposes and to get the hostages out, that's something that I could that I could support. Uh, because of the lack of fuel that Israel is is not allowing into Gaza, the WHO says six hospitals. They're closed overnight. And Mark Regev, a senior advisor to Netanyahu, explained to Jake Tapper yesterday why they're not allowing it in. Listen. The same fuel is taken, stolen by Hamas. And as you've said correctly, they control Gaza. They're the only people there with guns. They can take what they want. They take that off for their military machine. And they use that for... Uh, rockets. For rockets and for their underground network of tunnels. And right, for the oxygen in the tunnels. Correct. Right. And, and we obviously want to deny them that.
But at the same time, the WHO is specifically laying out, because of this lack of power, even 130 premature babies, they said, are at risk of dying. Is it a mistake for Israel not to allow fuel in? It is. Fuel has to be let into Gaza, period, stop. The consequences of fuel not coming in are so far reaching that it's hard to get your head wrapped around it. Yes, of course, the first thing you think about is these hospitals that shut down, the NICUs that literally can't power themselves. But it's also water treatment and desalinization facilities that can't operate. You could see a massive cholera outbreak. Um, it is um, possible to uh, bring fuel into Gaza and direct it to hospitals, to critical civilian infrastructure without it getting into the hands of Hamas. UNRWA can do that. The Red Crescent can do that. You can put protocols and safeguards around the delivery of fuel to make sure that it gets to the right places, but it is simply not acceptable to cut the entirety of Gaza, including um, a million plus children, uh, off from fuel that keeps people alive. And not acceptable uh, for Israel to keep doing this. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you for being with us. Come back soon. Thank you. Hurricane Otis making landfall in Mexico as a Category 5 storm, a first for the East Pacific. We're tracking that storm. And the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is getting worse. As Poppy was just noting, the fuel shortage is forcing hospitals to close. Matt Miller from the State Department joins us just ahead. We're going to ask him how much-needed aid can get into Gaza without getting into the hands of Hamas. Stay with us. It's coming. That is the message from the Israeli Prime Minister. Hamas operatives used hardwired phones in the tunnels over a period of two years. Fueled the center of the hostage negotiations and of the desperation of getting aid to people inside. Republicans have chosen yet another nominee for Speaker of the House. Mike Johnson won the majority, but there's a real warning for him to get the 217 votes. This has been a wasted three weeks. This House Republican majority is united. Jack Smith has secured his most valuable witness yet, Mark Meadows. Prosecutors do not hand out immunity agreements like candy. Mark Meadows was at the center of so much of this. He could speak to Trump's mindset in a very specific way. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. Aaron Burnett is live with us in Tel Aviv and new this morning. Israel rejecting calls for a ceasefire and launching large scale strikes once again on Gaza overnight. This video you're watching now is of a Palestinian man buried in the rubble asking if his wife is okay. Explosions can be heard in the background. The bombardment coming just hours after the head of the United Nations called Israel's airstrikes, quote, collective punishment of the Palestinian people and demanded an immediate ceasefire at a contentious Security Council meeting. The relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties, and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. That drew a very sharp and angry response from Israel's foreign minister. I hear the calls, as Selim before, for a ceasefire. Tell me, what is a proportionate response for killing of babies, for rape women and burn them, for beheading of a child. How you can agree to a ceasefire with someone who swore to kill 
and destroy your own existence. How? And we are now learning this morning how Hamas may have been able to plan secretly its huge surprise attack and massacre without Israel knowing. Sources tell CNN intelligence shared with the United States shows a small cell of Hamas operatives used a network of phone lines in the underground tunnels beneath Gaza to communicate and plan their attack for more than two years. The humanitarian crisis is deepening for roughly two million civilians trapped inside the war zone. United Nations Relief Agency inside Gaza says it will need to shut down operations today if it does not receive more fuel. Let's go straight to Aaron Burnett, joining us live from Tel Aviv. Aaron, we have this new reporting I want to ask you about into CNN just moments ago. Qatar's prime minister saying mm -hmm. he's hopeful for a breakthrough soon on the hostages held by Hamas. What do we know about these intensive conversations? Qatar's really been at the center of all of these talks. They have. And in fact, the Israeli uh, national security adviser coming out today and uh, saying, and I quote, Qatar's diplomatic efforts are crucial at this time. So Israel is also acknowledging the important role that Qatar is playing. And it is uh, the prime minister there that says he is hopeful for a breakthrough soon on the hostages. Uh, we know that Qatar and Egypt obviously have been mediating. You've seen them involved with the two releases thus far. Uh, I, I actually spoke to an Israeli hostage negotiator, who, the, the man who was responsible for the release of, you may remember, the IDF soldier, Gilad Shalit, he, uh, who was held for five years, right, before he was finally released. Uh, this, this man was telling me that he's been speaking to Hamas daily, uh, that he understands that, that there is a big release on the table, a mass release of civilian hostages being discussed. I emphasize the word civilian because uh, the way that Hamas may define IDF could be quite broad, right, as Israelis uh, go through military service in the IDF and, and as, as part of uh, just a regular thing that they do, right? So that may be more broadly defined than people would think, but certainly children and elderly included in what be a mass release. He said, though, that the conversations on who would go first and who is who should blame is very much at the kindergarten level and had some deep frustration about where it is right now, but did say uh, that the holdups, of course, are the fuel, as we know. Uh, that is a huge one, and also that Hamas is demanding a ceasefire, which would enable them to have some time to regroup. So uh, it is all consistent that a big conversation has been going on for days for a mass release, uh, and very telling that Qatar is willing to come out and express confidence, and that Israel is bolstering that. But obviously, we're not there yet, Phil. Aaron, we heard uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday speaking to soldiers again in the <laughs> IDF and saying very clearly to them, the next phase is coming. What has happened overnight, and what does yeah. that mean? So they've been saying the next stage, and then you've had the defense minister going and visiting troops. Uh, you've had the Navy, and they all are saying, uh, your time is coming, be ready. In a sense, part of this appears to be really an, an implicit acknowledgement that these troops have been ready to go and, frankly, expected to go in quite some time ago, and that there has been delays. And that's just the reality of it. So they continually visit the front lines to tell them, essentially, be strong, stay ready, your moment will come. So it's, it's, it's a lot of that psychological support. But the strikes continue. And we've heard, you know, Nick Robertson reporting on these new precision mortar munitions that Israel has been using that are different than anything they've used before. They even sound different. I've heard that both from Nick as they go in, and I've heard that from a source in northern Gaza, saying that it sounds completely different. Uh, but even overnight, hundreds more strikes. They said they killed the commander of the uh, Khan Yunus North Battalion uh, of Hamas, who they say has been instrumental in many terrorist attacks. This morning, saying that they found a tunnel, Phil and Poppy, that actually came from Gaza to a beach on 
on the Israeli side and that they said two Hamas operatives came out of that, uh, engaged in a fight with Israeli special forces who were there and the Hamas operatives were killed. But this is happening day in and day out. And while we don't yet know how many Hamas operatives, how many commanders, how much capacity, capability, operational and command centers have been taken out, we do know that they're taking them out every single day, every single day. And there are hundreds of strikes. So Israel is making, in this 19th day of the war, steady progress, even as they have not yet gotten to that next stage, as they call it, Phil and Poppy. Yeah, an important point. Aaron Burnett, stay with us. We'll come back to you shortly. Thank you. Also, just in a report that President Biden is trying to slow down the ground invasion of Gaza, despite his vocal support for Israel's right to strike Hamas, Axios is reporting that the president has several concerns, including wanting more aid for civilians in Gaza and trying to get Americans that are trapped there out. Axios also says President Biden is motivated by military concerns, including fears of a ground invasion with a huge civilian death toll that does not destroy Hamas and a widening of the war. It comes, as sources tell CNN, that U.S. military advisors are invoking lessons learned from the war in Iraq and Afghanistan to urge Israelis to avoid an all-out ground war in Gaza. With me now from the State Department, spokesperson Matt Miller. And Matt, I really appreciate your time this morning. Let's just begin on that news. Is it the administration's goal to slow down Israel? So I'm not going to talk about the, the private conversations we have between our government and the government of Israel, only to, except to say that when we do talk with the government of Israel, both from the State Department and from uh, other, other agencies inside the U.S. government, as well as the White House, we have said uh, a number of things. One, we think they need to have clear, definable goals uh, in launching this military campaign, um, that they need to have a, a plan for how to execute it best and need to have a plan for how to best protect civilians. Um, we know that that's important to them. It's important to us. You've heard the president speak to this a number of times. And of course, the secretary has, has spoken to this a number of times. And at the same time, we continue to work to try to get humanitarian access, uh, humanitarian aid into Gaza for the innocent civilians uh, who are not um, a part of Hamas and who are suffering from yeah. this uh, conflict as well. On the point of civilians, which, yes, we've heard the president's secretary of state say it a number of times. Let's just take Monday as an example. CNN's reporting is that 700 civilians were killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza on Monday. On that same day, about that day, this is what Benjamin Netanyahu said, quote, in our attacks in Gaza, we struck the enemy in the harshest blow they've taken in a single day. We killed dozens of terrorists, possibly even more. Is it the Biden administration's position that it is comfortable with about 700 civilian deaths with dozens of terrorists being killed in the same day? Because that is what Netanyahu is saying they're achieving at this point. We don't want to see any civilian die, whether it be in Gaza or whether it be anyone else or anywhere else. We mourn the loss of every civilian life. The unfortunate truth, however, is that Hamas uses the civilians of Gaza as the civilians as human shields. They embed their infrastructure in schools, in hospitals, in residential uh, apartment buildings, and so it's very difficult for for Israel to conduct this operation when Hamas is embedding itself inside the civilian population. What they do is warn civilians to vacate areas before they conduct strikes. But we are in constant communication with them about how best they can do that and, and encouraging them to act within the laws of war. Uh, as the president has said, it's important that democracies uh, uh, follow. Uh, it's important that democracies respect all human life. It's important that democracies uh, follow the laws of war and follow international law. That's what we expect Israel to do. And we'll continue to be in conversation with them about that. Matt, let me ask you about this brand new reporting uh, out of Qatar that the foreign minister and the prime minister of Qatar have just said that they are hopeful for a breakthrough soon on hostages. Should American families waiting for hostages, Israeli families waiting for their loved ones also be more hopeful this morning? 
I don't want to say more hopeful or less hopeful. I'll just say, reiterate what we said from the beginning, which is it is one of our top priorities to try to get these hostages home. Uh, the secretary and the president were involved in efforts to try to, re- to get the hostages released in the early aftermath of the October 7th attacks. The secretary uh, had an initial phone call with the prime minister of Qatar, and then we, of course, traveled to the region. We had meetings with them where we talked about work to, to um, return these hostages. You've seen very initial efforts with two American citizens released and two Israeli citizens mm-hmm. released over the weekend. And so we are continuing to work with the government of Qatar. We are very appreciative of the efforts that they have made. It's been very important in, in the progress that we've had so far. Uh, we know that there are still 10 Americans who are, remain unaccounted for, and mm-hmm. we do know, unfortunately, that some of those are hostages, as, of course, a number of other foreign nationals and ultimately hundreds of, of Israeli citizens. So we're going to continue to work on, uh, work on it. But one of the things I'll say is we have found that throughout Talking about our work publicly in such a sensitive, delicate area uh, isn't actually helpful to our goal of trying to get these hostages released. Matt, let me ask you about Americans that are stuck in Gaza, not hostages, but Americans stuck there. We heard from John Kirby at the White House yesterday. He said there's not a place in the world where the Pentagon doesn't have contingency plans on the shelf. But I want you to listen to something that Sammy Nabolsi told us. He is a friend of a couple, American couple, stuck there with their one-year-old. Listen. And that statement by Secretary Blinken is one of two things. It's either not true or it's wordplay. So physically at the crossing, there are no militants. There are no military or government personnel at all on the Palestinian side. Aboud sent me videos and pictures of him at the crossing. And literally, the only thing between him and Egypt is a series of gates that are just closed. There just isn't an agreement right now about aid coming in and American citizens getting out. Has the administration seen evidence of Hamas blocking the border? And what is that plan that John Kirby talked about to get them home? Let me explain what's happening here, because it is a very complicated situation. So the Rafah border crossing is similar to a lot of border crossings you may have been through uh, in your life. There is an Egyptian side, the southern side of the crossing, and there is a, 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 a Gaza side. Uh, on the on the the Gaza side of the crossing, and there is a no man's land in between, and so the Egyptians are on their side, ready they say to to accept people, uh, uh, foreign nationals, uh, United States citizens, if they can make it to Egyptian processing. On the other side, we have seen a couple things. At times, as as the as in the clip you just showed, Hamas has had no one there manning the the, the border station. Remember that this is an area that is administered by Hamas. Hamas has been the government of Gaza for some time, and they before this conflict and that, that um, a border station. At other times, we have seen Hamas militants act- actively there with guns, uh, preventing people from approaching the crossing. So there has been a problem in getting people through the Gaza side into the no man's land where they can ultimately get across to the Egyptian side to be processed to enter into Egypt. It is an extremely difficult situation. We continue to work through it with the Egyptian government. We continue to work through it with the United Nations. We continue to work through it with the government of Israel. Our ambassador, David Satterfield, our special envoy for Middle East humanitarian issues, has been on the ground and I can tell you has been uh, uh, focused, uh, has been intensely focused on this, and we hope to reach a solution. Matt, also, I want to give you a chance to respond to uh, an op-ed written yesterday. I know you saw it in the Washington Post by Josh Paul. He's a former colleague of yours at the State Department uh, who wrote about why he resigned. And here's what he writes. The absence of a willingness to hold that debate when it comes to Israel is not proof of our commitment to Israel's security. Rather, it's proof of our commitment to a policy that the record shows is a dead end a proof of our willingness to abandon our values and turn a blind eye to the suffering of millions in Gaza 
when it is politically expedient. He says the State Department did not and would not engage in a substantive debate about whether to transfer arms to Israel after the attacks on October 7th. What is the State Department response to that? Well, I couldn't disagree anymore. Just because any one individual isn't involved in a debate that's happening inside the State Department doesn't mean those conversations aren't going on. We, of course, have conversations about every uh, arms transfer that, that um, uh, we make. Um, they are discussed both here at the State Department and throughout the interagency, the Defense Department and the White House. And ultimately, we make the decisions that we think are, are best for the interests of our partners, our allies, and for the interests of the national security of the United States. I will say that we have been focused on two things. Number one, making sure Israel has what it needs to defend itself. I think you always have to go back to the context of this, which Israel suffered a deadly terrorist attack in which armed militants came into Israel and killed uh, civilians, women, children, elderly, took many of them hostage. And those terrorist attacks are ongoing. So Israel has a right and an obligation to defend itself as any country would. At the same time, we continue to, 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 to make very clear that we expect them to behave in the laws of war. And, and this is the really important thing that I think sometimes gets lost in this debate, it is the United States that has brokered the agreement to get humanitarian access into innocent civilians in so, Gaza. It is the United States that is working to set up areas inside Gaza where civilians can be safe from harm. So while, yes, the, it, we, have, we have focused on doing what, doing what it, we need to do so Israel can defend itself, it is the work of our diplomats and others in the White House and others in the national security establishment who are working overtime to try to ensure that civilians are protected to yeah. the maximum extent possible. Just to put a button on it, you're saying you had the debate internally. He just wasn't there for it. I'm not going to say I'm not going to, to be that specific other than to say, as okay. I said, generally, lots of times you'll hear people say, oh, this conversation isn't going on. I can assure you that we are discussing every one of these issues uh, at, at senior levels and throughout the agency. Matt Miller uh, with the State Department. Appreciate the time very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows reportedly striking a deal with federal prosecutors. What ABC News says he's offering up about the former president's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in exchange for immunity. And could the fourth time be the charm for House Republicans? Overnight, they picked another nominee. What to expect from the key vote just hours away next. We're also going to be joined this hour with the top Democrat in the House. Minority leader Hakeem Jeffries is here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We're learning this morning Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has been granted immunity by special counsel Jack Smith. That's according to an ABC News report that also says he's spoken with federal investigators at least three times this year. ABC sources tell them, quote, Meadows informed Smith's team that he repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the 2020 presidential election that the allegations of significant voting fraud coming to them were baseless. That, of course, would contradict many things that Meadows has said publicly, including in his book, which was first published in November 2021, a full year after the 2020 election. CNN has reached out to Mark Meadows' attorney and has not heard back. For his part, Donald Trump is denying that Meadows told him the, that allegations of significant voter fraud were baseless. Trump posting on Truth Social, quote, Mark Meadows never told me of that, uh, that allegations of significant fraud about the rigged election were baseless. He certainly didn't say that in his book. Joining us now is Timothy Parlatore. He's Donald Trump's former attorney and currently represents former New York Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick who's been subpoenaed to testify in the Georgia election uh, investigation. Tim, we appreciate your time. To start with, uh, there have been so many questions about where Mark Meadows is on all of this. Haven't heard from him much publicly other than down in Georgia. Were you surprised uh, about this reporting? 
No, I, I wasn't really surprised about it. I mean, Mark Meadows, we had not really had you know much of any communications with with him or his team. Uh, but if you go all the way back to March, April timeframe of this year, uh, you know, there was litigation over whether he could claim executive privilege and be prevented from testifying. And he was ordered you know, by the judge to testify before the grand jury. So, you know, this this immunity grant makes sense because when somebody in his position is then compelled under the executive privilege issue, they would naturally go before the grand jury. They plead the fifth and, you know, the prosecutor would say, hold on a minute. And they they run out and they give him a grant of immunity, at which point, you know, they no longer have a Fifth Amendment right. And they would you know basically have to answer every question. So I think that that really you know, based on the information that I know and the reading of that ABC article, this is something that happened back in April. Yeah, we don't have the timing on when this agreement was made. That's not our reporting yet, but we'll see. What about the Georgia RICO case? What does this mean for Mark Meadows in that state case? Because this says his testimony can't be used uh, in a federal prosecution. But what about state? Right. That's one of the unique things here, because you very rarely have dueling state and federal prosecutions. And so if things happened, as I just described, and again, that's based on my experience. I I don't know for a fact that that's how it went down. But when you have a witness that refuses to testify, you give them a grant of federal immunity, they testify, unless there's an issue of a parallel state case, which back in April, Mark Meadows wasn't necessarily expecting. And so... I could predict that what happened here is he was talking to Jack Smith's team until all of a sudden Fannie Willis decided to indict him. And, you know, then he starts pleading the fifth again and shuts down. And, you know, the timing of the ABC story to me is fascinating because just this past week is when Fannie Willis has all of a sudden started opening things up for everybody to get, you know, misdemeanor and no jail pleas. So... I wouldn't be surprised if this is really just a setup for Mark Meadows to take a sweetheart deal in Georgia. And, you know, maybe this article was even a message to Fannie Willis of, hey, maybe instead of indicting him, you should have tried talking to him first. And maybe you want to you know, step back from your position instead of, you know, continuing down this path. What would a plea in Georgia mean for the other uh, individuals indicted in that case? I mean, it won't necessarily mean, you know, too much. The, you know, the more people that take pleas, you know, they would be available to testify. It's not necessarily going to change what the information is. Uh, I think that it would probably help uh, to streamline the case. Obviously, the less defendants you have, uh, the faster a trial would go. And so whereas, you know, the judge had previously predicted that the trial may last eight months, you know, that's based on a presumption that you have, you know, 15 lawyers are going to cross-examine every witness. And so the more you cut that down, you know, the more it becomes a manageable trial that could potentially get pushed faster. All right, Timothy Parlatory, we appreciate your time. As always, sir, thank you. We'll be right back. Thank you. Democracy is messy sometimes, but it is our system. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority is united. That is Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, who Republicans designated to be the Speaker of the House late last night. He's the current vice chair of the Republican conference. He's also a staunch Trump ally who voted not to certify the results of the 2020 election and 
After Kevin McCarthy's ouster, he is now the fourth Republican nominee to be speaker in three weeks. A couple questions that are still outstanding. Johnson was only nominated with 128 votes. He will need at least 217 to be speaker. We're going to see if Johnson can get the support he needs today, at least as it's scheduled, as noon, at noon when the House plans to hold a full floor vote. Joining us now is Republican Congressman from Tennessee, Tim Burchett. He's one of the eight Republicans who voted to remove Speaker Kevin, then-Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his post. Uh, Congressman, it's Wednesday. Uh, you and I speak every Wednesday about whether or not there's going to be a speaker. My question on this, clearly there is unity and there's momentum behind Mike Johnson's candidacy at this point. There were 20-plus Republicans who did not vote last night. Why should we assume after the last 21 days that everyone's going to get in line? Well, it was late, and those 20 were, were out. Um, some of them had dinner, some of them had receptions. But I think what you need to understand about Mike Johnson is just who he is. You know, this town is bucking, and there's much gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands last night from the lobbyists and the special interest. Uh, you know, this, this town is languishing in, in moral and fiscal ambiguity. And he will restore that. Mike Johnson is a good man. And I think, as you saw last night, that we are ready for a leader. We, we, don't, we don't deserve a leader like Mike Johnson, but that gummit, um, we're going to get him. And, um, and I think he's going to carry us over the finish line. He is an excellent man. He's a family man. He's a fine Christian. And, uh, and he is a, I think he'll be a giant. He's not very tall. Phys physically, but uh, but but in the, in these halls, he, he is. Uh, you will stand in in his shadow. We we will not criticize height on this show, Congressman. Uh, <laughs> I think to some degree that gets to the point. I was talking to a Republican, one of your colleagues last night, who said he's the only guy right now in the race who like doesn't have a bunch of people who hate him. Is that the threshold here, basically? If you don't have enemies, that's your only pathway to two seventeen. No, no, not not a, at all. As a matter of fact, last week um, on Saturday, I. I I texted Mike. I was sitting with my wife, and we were talking. And she said, "Who do you think is, has got a shot at this thing?" And I said, "Well, it's always the first few that 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 hit the beach that get end up getting killed, and that's what exactly what happened." And I said, "I would hope that we would get someone like like Mike Johnson." And I and I actually had texted him at that, and I reminded him, and he reminded me of that last night. And uh, and so you know, and the other question. Is I get asked is is was it worth it? I said absolutely it was worth it. It was uh, you know as I've stated many times I prayed about it. It was the right thing to do, and I think you're going to see a great leader. I think the lobbyists are doing everything they can right now to generate as they did last night in our meeting. Um, you you saw some of the old guard trying to uh, rally support for a, a, a bogus write-in type situation. And then that's why we forced the vote on a um, on a on an actual voice vote, a roll call vote. So people had to stand up and then you saw everybody gathering around him uh, at the podium. So I, I think we are on our way to electing a speaker today at noon. I think Congressman, my biggest question right now is whoever your next leader was going to be. And if it's Mike Johnson, which appears there's momentum to that case, that person will have 23 days until the government is set to shut down again. He has committed to yep. standalone appropriations bills, of which I believe your chamber still has eight to pass. The Senate is just starting to move on its first three. There's no way to reconcile 12 bills in 23 days. And you guys don't support a continuing resolution. So how does the government not shut down? 
we follow the rules. You know, how, where was everybody yelling when we took off the entire month of August and two weeks into September when we knew September 30th was the end of our fiscal year? You know, what's going to have to happen? Some of these guys are going to have to get out of bed before noon and come down here and work. That's what's going to have to happen. The rest of the country is. I can guarantee you the good folks in Tennessee right now are on their way out the door. They're taking their kids to school. They're heading to work. They're going to the factories, whatever. Right. And you know what? Congress needs to get off their butts and get to work. And that's what needs to happen. And that's what can happen when, you know, we roll out of here. We set a meeting for 10 o'clock. And then we uh, cater in a, 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 a hearty lunch at taxpayer expense. And then we leave by two o'clock and we walk out with our Brooks Brothers suit, you know, unbuttoned and our, and our jacket thrown over our shoulder and, we, and our ties undone. And we say to America, we've been working hard. Well, you know what? That's an insult to hardworking Americans everywhere from the north to the south. America isn't buying that anymore. There's a new sheriff in town and his name is Mike Johnson and dadgummit, he's going to deliver. And we're going to see in about four and a half, five hours whether or not that's actually the case. Congressman, I appreciate your time as always, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And next Wednesday, you call me and we'll, we'll, we'll talk policy. We'll have breakfast. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> policy. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. I, I am a fan of Brooks Brothers. All right, Phil, thank you for that. Uh, also, this is a prize move by the United Auto Workers Union heating up their strike against the big three automakers. UAW members walked off the job at General Motors' largest plant yesterday. The biggest plant, that assembly plant, is in Arlington, Texas. And that brings the total number of UAW members on strike to 45,000 workers. The economic losses caused by the strike so far, it's in its sixth week, by the way, has surpassed $9.3 billion. That's according to the Anderson Economic Group. Well, we have new details this morning about an off-duty pilot accused of trying to cut the power on an Alaska Airlines flight now. He denied taking any medication, but what he says he did take, that's ahead. So we are learning some new details this morning about the off-duty pilot who is now facing 83 counts of attempted murder for trying to shut down the engines of an Alaskan Airlines plane mid-flight. Court documents show that Joseph Emerson told police he was having a nervous breakdown and that he had warned the crew that he needed to be sub warned that the crew needed to be subdued. He also said that he took magic mushrooms 48 hours before this happened. Pete Montine joins us now. Quite a development. Yeah, huge development, Poppy. You know, this is a guy who immediately realized what he did and essentially told other members of the flight crew, I'm not well. I'm a risk to the safety of these airplanes. These are some of the incredible new details coming out after Joseph Emerson's appearance in an Oregon court last night. This all comes from information that police got from a conversation they had with Emerson after they met the flight on the ground in Portland. Now, this incident took place at 31,000 feet. Emerson was seated in the jump seat. That's a small seat in the cockpit behind the pilots used by other airline pilots to deadhead from one airport to another. Now, Emerson said he reached up for two big red handles at the top of the cockpit. Those are the engine fire extinguisher handles that first cut off the flow of fuel. And Emerson told police he pulled those handles because he thought he was in a dream and wanted to wake up. Then there was a struggle. Pilots reset that system. They say they prevented the airplane from becoming a glider in a matter of seconds. Emerson left the cockpit, according to police, closed the door and told a flight attendant, you need to cuff me right now or it's going to be bad. 
Flight attendants restrained Emerson in the back of the plane, and police say that's where he also tried to open an emergency exit. But it's the conversation that police had with Emerson on the ground that really gives the most insight to why this may have happened in the first place. Emerson told police he was in mental crisis. He hadn't slept in 40 hours, that he consumed magic mushrooms 48 hours before this incident. Now, Emerson faces an attempted murder charge for each of the 83 other people on board this plane. But the conversation in the the pilot community right now really focuses on this. Emerson told police he had been depressed for years. And pilots often fear speaking up about their mental health because they're worried that they'll lose their FAA medical certificate and throw away their career. It's a really sad tale here. Now, Emerson told police he admitted to what he did was wrong and he realized it. But right now he's pleading not guilty to the state charges. He's expected to face a federal charge in court tomorrow. Poppy. It's a, a really important point you made, uh, Pete, about the broader picture here and fear among pilots as well. Um, thank you for the reporting. Well, after a late night scramble to secure a nominee, the House is once again set to vote on a new speaker just a few hours from now. House Democratic Leader Congressman Hakeem Jeffries joins us live to discuss next. This morning, the House is expected to have yet another floor vote for Speaker. This comes after Republicans last night picked Congressman Mike Johnson as their latest Speaker designee. The big question, can he get to 217 votes that he's going to need to actually win the gavel? After weeks of frustration, Republicans seem to get behind Johnson. Uh, This has been a wasted three weeks uh, and has really uh, prevented us from doing the important work. So uh, to me, it's important we elect a speaker and get back to work. This is the closest that we have come to being able to cross that finish line. So I think Mike's got the ability to do that. It it derailed our agenda for a number of weeks, uh, but we're back. You go through tough times together that you wouldn't want to repeat. They make you stronger. You're better for them. We're more united because of what we went through. Joining us now is the House Democratic Leader, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Sir, we appreciate your time this morning. To, to start with, on uh, Congressman Johnson, given the fact that there appears, at least based on that sound, that there is momentum behind him, is this somebody you believe Democrats can work with across the aisle? Well, good morning. Great to be with you. I don't know uh, Mike Johnson well. Based on his track record, he clears, appears to be uh, an extreme right-wing ideologue. Uh, Mike Johnson wants to criminalize abortion care and impose a nationwide ban. Uh, Mike Johnson was one of the chief architects of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Mike Johnson also wants to end Social Security and Medicare as we know it. Those are extreme views, uh, and House Democrats will push back aggressively against that. However, at the same period of time, we've said from the very beginning of this Congress and demonstrated that we are ready, willing, and able uh, to find common ground with our Republican colleagues in order to advance bipartisan solutions to solve problems for hardworking American taxpayers. And all Mike Johnson will need to do uh, is to meet us in a bipartisan way in that fashion, and we'll be able to work together whenever and wherever possible. Uh, Mr. Leader, I was talking to a Republican congressman last night. I wouldn't put in the Mike Johnson category ideologically. He said, look, we have to do something. That's why people are moving in this direction. Framing it as if there was no other alternative. Had a resolution been put on the floor, or if a resolution is put on the floor to more broadly empower the Speaker pro tem, do you think Democrats would support it? Would you ask your members to support it? Well, we would have to have a caucus discussion, but we have made very clear from the beginning that we looked 
toward a bipartisan path to reopen the House. Uh, and one of the possible routes uh, was to provide support necessary in order to empower a Speaker pro tem to reopen the House in order for us to be able to consider bills that are important to the health, the safety, and the economic well-being of the American people, to fund the government, to avoid a shutdown, to make sure that we are standing by our friends and allies like Israel and Ukraine during their time of need, as well as to provide humanitarian assistance uh, to Palestinian civilians who may be in harm's way. These are important items, and if reopening the House required a bipartisan agreement with respect to the Speaker pro tem, I think that that is something that we would have been open to as we have repeatedly expressed publicly and communicated to our Republican colleagues privately. You have 23 days until the government is set to shut down again. This process, if it ends today, has burned 21 days, 22 days at this point in time. Uh, I believe Mike Johnson was committing to once again doing standalone appropriations bills. There's no way to reconcile all 12 of them in that amount of time. Are we headed for another government shutdown or towards the possibility of a government shutdown? House Democrats, along with President Biden, Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans are prepared to do what's necessary to meet the needs of the American people, avoid a government shutdown. And the path to doing so uh, is for House Republicans to adhere to the agreement that they themselves negotiated in May of this year with respect to the Fiscal Responsibility Act. That set top-line spending numbers for us to utilize in order to reach agreement on the spending priorities and needs for the American people. It was Republicans who, less than a week after supporting that agreement that they negotiated with President Biden, broke their word, abandoned the agreement, and that is why we're facing a possible government shutdown. And so the notion of doing individual appropriations bills at this point, after Republicans have been wasting time mired in chaos, dysfunction, and extremism, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Would you accept some reduction in the top line of a continuing resolution in order to help a new speaker? No, an agreement is an agreement. And basically, uh, we have all adhered to the parameters of what was agreed upon and passed into law, which meets the needs of the American people. The House Democrats are in agreement with the Senate Democrats. We both are in agreement with Senate Republicans. All of us are in agreement with President Biden. It's the extreme MAGA Republicans in the House who are on, who are on an island. Uh, they need to get off that island and join us in a bipartisan way so we can fund the government responsibly. Uh, another issue this uh to put it kindly, circus has delayed is the consideration of the $105 billion supplemental aid request that includes money for Ukraine, as well as for uh, Israel and humanitarian support uh, for citizens of Gaza. Would you be willing to separate those out, particularly the Ukraine-Israel uh, humanitarian aid issue, given some of the Republican opposition there? No, it's my expectation uh, that the Senate will send over a bipartisan bill that meets the needs of the American people from a national security standpoint, and that necessarily involves being supportive of Israel in its war against Hamas, being supportive of the Ukrainian war effort against Russian aggression. It's in the best interest of the free world that we stand by Ukraine, that Ukraine prevail. It's in the best interest of democracy and freedom and truth, values that we hold dear here in America. 
Uh, and we also, of course, must meet the humanitarian needs of people throughout the world, including Palestinian civilians who may be in harm's way. That bipartisan package, when it comes over from the Senate, shouldn't be broken up. The time for partisanship is over. The time for gamesmanship is over. The time for extreme MAGA Republican brinksmanship is over. We need to reopen the House, get back to doing the business of the American people. Let's do it in a bipartisan way uh, so we can solve problems for everyday Americans. I understand your opposition to where Mike Johnson stands ideologically and on policy, but you're known, and this might surprise some people outside of Washington, to have good relationships with members across the aisle. You had a good relationship, had, have, TBD, with the former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Have you spoken to Mike Johnson in the last 24 hours? Do you plan to speak to him right away if he ends up uh, becoming Speaker? I have not spoken to uh, Mike Johnson over the last several weeks at all uh, during this period of Republican chaos and dysfunction. However, uh, we should always agree to disagree without being disagreeable and find common ground in order to meet the needs of the American people. And so if Mike Johnson does emerge uh, as the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. I do look forward to having a conversation with him uh, to figure out how we can agree upon a bipartisan agenda that is designed to put people over politics. Uh, we can fight collectively, as Democrats have been doing, for better paying jobs and lower costs and safer communities and to build an economy from the middle out and the bottom up as opposed to the top down. What is your relationship like with Kevin McCarthy now? Well, listen, we had a very positive, forward-looking relationship. I haven't spoken to him in the last few weeks. Uh, but if Kevin McCarthy remains a member of Congress, I expect that we'll find opportunities uh, to be able to work together uh, whenever and wherever possible to meet the needs of the people that he represents uh, in California that I'm privileged to represent in New York City, as well as the needs of the American people. All right. House Democratic Leader Keem Jeffries, it's been a long three weeks. We'll see how things go today. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Phil. Had former members of Donald Trump's inner circle appear to be turning on him under legal heat. We'll tell you why next. And Turkey's President Erdogan saying, quote, Hamas is not a terror organization, but a group for liberation. We'll discuss the impact that has on the region. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's coming. That is the message from the Israeli Prime Minister. Hamas operatives used hardwired phones in the tunnels over a period of two years. Fueled the center of the hostage negotiations and of the desperation of getting aid to people inside. Republicans have chosen yet another nominee for Speaker of the House. Mike Johnson won the majority, but there's a real warning for him to get the 217 votes. This has been a wasted three weeks. This House Republican majority is united. Jack Smith has secured his most valuable witness yet, Mark Meadows. Prosecutors do not hand out immunity agreements like candy. Mark Meadows was at the center of so much of this. He could speak to Trump's mindset in a very specific way. Welcome, everyone. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. And we begin with the federal election interference case against Donald Trump. The former president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, we've learned was granted immunity by special counsel Jack Smith and met with his team more than once. That is according to ABC News reporting. Meadows allegedly told investigators that he did not believe the election was stolen and talked about this moment on Election Day in November 2020. Frankly, we did win this election. <laughs> 
Meadows reportedly telling investigators earlier this year that he believed Trump was being, quote, dishonest and saying that CNN anchor of the source, Caitlin Collins, joins us now. Um, we have all been asking for, I don't know, a year plus. What's up with Mark Meadows? Where's yep. he at? Where's his place in all of this? This is big. I think this is what people suspected was happening with Mark Meadows, that there was something happening given his name was not on that indictment that came down in Washington when it listed mm -hmm. all the people who were involved in these efforts, who were around. Certainly, he is someone who would, was presumed to have been on the list. And so what ABC is reporting is that he has been granted immunity. What it's not clear is what kind of immunity, how far that immunity goes. Is it just carte blanche? What does that actually look like? But the other part of ABC's reporting that is so interesting is what he told Jack Smith's team about what was happening, these conversations that he claimed he was telling Trump he did not win the election, that it was not rigged, that it was not stolen. I mean, to look at that testimony and to look at what's in Mark Meadows's book, which has been its own source of fascination because of the classified documents case. I mean, in the book, he, he writes basically the complete opposite. And of course, it's not a crime to, to lie in your book, but I do think that's something um, that investigators would have questions about what he said then versus what he's apparently testifying. But I, I do think if he does have this full-blown immunity, and I think there's questions of did it come from a court order? Where did it, what is it exactly? What are the terms of it? I mean, it would be incredibly bad for yeah. Donald Trump. I also was fascinated by what he told, according to ABC, uh, Jack Smith's team, that what Trump said to him after the Supreme Court decision on December 11th, basically Trump admitting at least privately to him, this is the end of the road. Yeah. And acknowledging privately that it that he had. It. I mean, Trump is denying this. I should note he's been posting nonstop since the story came out last night, saying that Mark Meadows never told him the election wasn't rigged, never said any of that to him. Of course, I mean, it's Mark Meadows's word against Donald Trump's. And Mark Meadows is someone who and when you covered him and he often had this reputation of being someone who would say one thing to one person, one thing to someone else. And that certainly was an issue in this time period, because we heard from the January 6th congressional testimony of people saying, you know, Mark Meadows, you need to step in. You're the chief of staff here. And he basically said Trump wasn't listening to anyone who was pushing back on on the election stuff. You mentioned the truth social posting from the former president going after or saying Mark Meadows, you didn't think he would do this, kind of attacking him a little bit or the idea of it inside the Trump operation. What's the response to this? I think they've all suspected something was going on. As you mentioned, those questions that have been going around Washington, I mean, they start within the Trump Trump orbit. And they know Mark Meadows is silent. His attorney doesn't speak to the other attorneys here. And obviously that's typically something that's been going on is they were reading the tea leaves pre-indictment in Washington to see what was going to happen. I think the question also is how this impacts Georgia and what's happening there. Because obviously when that happened and when Mark Meadows' name was on that indictment list, it raised a lot of questions of how it causes issues for Jack Smith if he's trying to use Mark Meadows as a star right. witness. Is it also clear? I don't I didn't read it as clear what, if anything, Mark Meadows agreed to plead guilty to with Jack Smith's team. Nope. It's, no, right? It's just exchange for testimony to immunity. And that's the question, because is it, if it's full immunity and he can't be charged with anything, then that is another layer to this. But we don't exactly know, was it you know, a proffer agreement where he could go in and it's just in that one setting where he yep. can basically say whatever and it won't be used against him. There's a lot of questions that are still we're still trying to bear out even here. I should note CNN has not confirmed this reporting yet uh, about what exactly the terms of this agreement are, because that does make a huge difference. Huge difference. Yeah. All right, Caitlin, stay with us. We also want to bring in CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director, Alyssa Farrow, knows Mark Meadows pretty well. Alyssa Farrow Griffin and former senior investigative counsel of the January 6th uh, commit, select committee, Timodayo Aganga-Williams. Timodayo, I want to start with you because... <clears throat> 
to Caitlin's point, trying to figure out what this means, the structure of it, what it would actually entail. When you read this story, the details that we have, according to ABC News, what's your takeaway from it? So I do think Caitlin's right that we should not conflate what would be all-out cooperation, which would be proffer agreements, which means sitting down and really talking about your entire criminal conduct, everything from what you could be charged with here to a piece of candy you stole when you were a kid. That's what federal cooperation looks like. Getting immunity, which is what the report uh, indicates for testifying in a grand jury, that's something very specific, and that is limited in scope. So that could be basically Jack Smith wanting to get honest testimony on a, on a particular instance about specific questions. That does not mean that Mark Meadows is going to be in court testifying against Donald Trump. I think one of the big problems here you're going to find is that he has massive credibility issues. Right? It, he's going to have to answer the question on the cross-examination that, okay, you're going to have to admit you're a liar, and are you lying now or were you lying then? And that's a tough thing. So I think what's going to have to happen is that, is there corroboration for any statements that he's told Jack Smith. And that's what's going to matter. Did he turn over documents? Did he turn over the same way he did to Jan 6 committee when he provided that treasure trove of text messages? He likes to text. He does. So <laughs> those are the kind of independent corroboration that could help uh, bolster a otherwise damaged witness here. Is this the Mark Meadows you know, this Mark Meadows making a deal like this? The Mark Meadows I thought I knew is a very different man than what I think turned out to be the public-facing uh, version. But, I mean, to Caitlin's point, I think the most consistent thing folks in Washington who know Mark Meadows will say is that he talks out of both sides of his mouth. He's somebody who's innately a No one people. in Washington does that. <laughs> right. But he, he <laughs> probably takes it to a whole new, like, sport level where um, he innately wants to be liked and stay in the good graces of certain people. And I'm going to speculate a little bit here, but knowing him very well for very many years, um, he has a good attorney, George Terwilliger, who I think is a serious person who wants to keep Mark Meadows out of jail. I think on the one side, he's giving him actually sound legal advice about how far he should go in cooperating with the Department of Justice. But I think Mark Meadows publicly wants to still be seen as aligned with Trump world and as somebody who would never flip on him. So his public statements very much may contradict what he's actually doing behind the scenes. Trump world's very aware of this, though. There has been uh, basically a year and a half, two years of souring on him and not trusting that he's engaging in good faith and that he's still loyal to the team. So I think this is a mixture of, you know, a smart attorney who wants to, frankly, keep him out of jail and then Meadows still wanting to stay in the conservative fold, mm -hmm. still be, you know, former Freedom Caucus chairman who's Donald Trump's greatest ally. Now, to Caitlin's point, we don't know what this means for Georgia. We had Timothy Parlatori, who used to be on Trump's legal team, was on earlier and suggested that maybe this is a sign that they want to make a deal with Fonnie Willis or they might want to plead. We don't, we don't know any of that. But it does happen at the same time that just yesterday we saw Jenna Ellis uh, in court tearfully not taking responsibility for any of her own actions to some degree. Uh, we've seen that's is now the third, I believe, uh, person to do so. What effect does this have on uh, the Georgia case? I think it affects how Mark Meadows' lawyer is going to approach this, because if he's going to have a resolution with Jack Smith, he's going to seek, if possible, a global resolution. But those two offices, Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis, they're going to be operating independently of each other. So they're not going to be looking and saying, uh, OK, he's cooperating on the federal side, therefore he should help over this side. Those are separate offices, and they're not going to be coordinating to that level because there are other considerations from a prosecutor's perspective, why not to do that? So at this time, until he actually signs a cooperation agreement, I would not expect it to have any impact on the Fonnie Willis case. And what I suspect uh, he's probably doing, because I think he does have a, a serious lawyer, is that he's trying to cooperate enough with Jack Smith to avoid any future charges here 
while also trying uh, to get out of the Georgia case through his procedural mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But I do not think he's looking to plead guilty in either case. And that's what's typically going to be required for any kind of cooperation. You see with Jenna Ellis and, and the agreement there. She's pled guilty. And that's what cooperation means. It's accepting responsibility. Right. It's not merely coming in and talking. It's not merely admitting to certain things. It's saying what you did. And frankly, I think he's benefiting from Jack Smith's approach, which is just to charge Donald Trump now and put all this later on. In a typical federal investigation, you would charge those lower level people earlier on. You would charge them to force him to flip. And because that case is focused on just the former president, I think not only Mark Meadows, yeah. but Eastman and everyone else, they get the benefit of that. Caitlin, you know uh, Trump world better than just about anyone. This doesn't come in a vacuum. This comes in a, a week where we've seen three others flip in the Georgia case. Any sense that the walls are closing in or no? I mean, I think it's publicly they'll say no. It's just, you know, none of this means anything. City Powell wasn't really my attorney. Neither was Jenna Ellis. I mean, Jenna Ellis was so close to Trump world, you can't really even overstate how close she was. She was having direct conversations with Trump. She was out on TV. He loved her TV appearances where she was out there pushing back on people who were saying, you know, the election wasn't stolen. And so I think that is really one of the most interesting guilty pleas that we've seen in this Actually, entire can we thing. we play the mashup of the old Jenna Ellis it, it's sound stunning. that we have? Do we have that? This is an elite strike force team that is working on behalf of the president and the campaign to make sure that our constitution is protected. President Trump is right that there was widespread fraud. The election was stolen and President Trump won by a landslide. We have this overwhelming evidence of fraud. This election was fraudulent, it was corrupted. All of these uh, false and fraudulent results. So to your point, <laughs> less elite of a strike force than perhaps they thought, Yeah. but that she was the, the person and in the room. And she was willing to go on TV and repeat it, which Trump loved, and therefore it forged a closer relationship with the two of them. And so that's why it was it was fascinating to watch her yesterday in court through tears, you know, essentially arguing, as you were saying, she didn't really take responsibility. She basically was saying that Rudy Giuliani and others misled her, people with more experience. I mean, she is an experienced attorney. Like, she was in there. She knew what she was doing. And so I just think it's fascinating, all of this, seeing her plead guilty and the concerns that Trump world has about that. Mark Meadows, how that's affecting you. He was involved in the back and forth with the speaker race yesterday. He's right. talking to all these House Republicans. And one of the parts of the House Republicans race was whether or not you voted to certify the election. That was disqualifying for Tom Emmer to be House yeah. Speaker. And so it's just remarkable to look at all of this through the Connected. broader lens. Can I mention one thing on Mark Meadows, too, is, of course, there's the friction of the book, which is just chock full of lies. He even walked back something in his own book, calling it fake news when Donald Trump criticized it. But like Caitlin said, writing something wrong in a book, that's not a crime. But myself, as you'll remember from the January 6th committee, Cassidy Hutchinson, both testified to the fact and to the Department of Justice that Mark Meadows told us things along the lines of, we are going to stay in power, or what if I told you we're going to stay in power? So there are statements that indicate he thought that there was a chance he would be holding on. So I, I think there is going to be a bit of a friction in testimony they may get from him about um, him saying, you know, the election wasn't stolen and apparently allegedly telling the truth to Donald Trump. And then what he said to other people. And I know he said a number of different things to people on Capitol Hill as well. All right, Caitlin, Alyssa, Tim Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Thank you. Overnight, Qatar's prime minister saying he's hopeful for a breakthrough on hostages held by Hamas. Could intensive talks pay off? We're back on the ground in Tel Aviv with the latest. And hey, they're going to give it another shot in just a couple of hours. The House is going to try to elect a speaker.
more CNN This Morning to come after the break. Israel is rejecting calls for a ceasefire and pounding Gaza with another series of airstrikes. Listen to this. That was a huge blast just a short time ago, right near our news camera that staked out on a rooftop. The bombardment coming just hours after the head of the United Nations called Israel's airstrikes, quote, collective punishment of the Palestinian people and demanded an immediate ceasefire at a contentious Security Council meeting. The relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties, and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. That drew a sharp and fiery response from Israel's foreign minister. I hear the calls, as said before, for a ceasefire. Tell me, what is a proportionate response for killing of babies, for rape women and burn them, for beheading of a child. How you can agree to a ceasefire with someone who swore to kill and destroy your own existence? How? Also potentially a hopeful development we'll see on hostages this morning. The prime minister of Qatar says he is hopeful there could be a breakthrough soon in negotiations with Hamas to release more of those hostages held in Gaza. Let's go straight to Aaron Burnett. She joins us live from Tel Aviv. So, Aaron, there's that update from Qatar, but I also want to ask you about what President uh, Erdogan of Turkey just said. He defended Hamas. He said it's not a terror organization. He also went on to say, look, Turkey has, quote, no problem with the state of Israel. But then he went on to call out what he calls atrocities. It's a tight rope he's trying to walk here. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, Poppy, I mean, and, and look, this reflects... Uh, the unfortunate uh, schism that, that you see out there right now, the, the sort of unfortunate reality that to call something brutal and horrific and depraved and unacceptable uh, then has to be met immediately. Well, something else is also that. So therefore, your original claim does not carry as much merit. It's this horrible cycle uh, that we're hearing right now. Uh, President Erdogan, I mean, there, there's, there's no nuance on this. Hamas is not a terrorist organization. He just said in a speech, Papi and Phil, but a group for liberation and of Mujahideen fighting to protect their land and citizens. And he said the West got together and sees Hamas as a terror organization. Israel, you may act like an organization because the West owes you a lot, but Turkey doesn't owe you. And then meanwhile goes on to say that Turkey doesn't have a, a problem with the state of Israel. Um, you know, look, you're seeing him in, in, in very explicitly siding with Hamas going even further, frankly, than um, the Dmitry Peskov, the spokesperson for Putin. But very clearly in that camp of uh, looking the other way on the atrocities that were committed by Hamas that we've seen uh, from other leaders, including uh, out of Russia, as well as uh, President Xi in China. But extremely direct from Erdogan this morning. There's no question about that, Phil. You know, Aaron, speaking of countries that have played delicate balancing acts over the course of the last several weeks, this morning, Qatar's prime minister is saying he's hopeful for a breakthrough soon on the hostages held by Hamas. Qatar has been such a critical component of the negotiations, the talks that have been underway. What do we know about where it stands today? Right. And talk about playing a very different role, right? Qatar, which is allows on its soil Hamas, 
Taliban, right, organizations that over time have been clearly labeled as terrorist organizations by the U.S. and Europe, as Hamas is, right? They allow them there, but they also play this crucial role of mediator. We saw that when they uh, were instrumental in negotiations with the Taliban. We're seeing that now. They were obviously uh, the crucial party in Natalie and Judith Anand's release on Friday night. They are continuing to play a central role and the National Security Advisor here in Israel today crediting Qatar with that. So I think that's extremely significant to note and they are talking about a breakthrough. I did speak earlier to a hostage negotiator here in Israel who was responsible for the release of Gilad Shalit, the IDF soldier who had been held by Hamas for five years. He's been speaking to Hamas every day. He says there is indeed a big deal on the table that would call for releasing all of the civilian hostages that Hamas holds in exchange for uh, a lot of fuel requirements as well as some sort of a temporary ceasefire, which so far have been non-starters uh, for Israel. But, but nonetheless, it is very clear that there is a deal that has been put on the table for days. There just simply has been an ability, to, uh, inability, I'm sorry, to get it to the finish line. But it's significant today that Israel came out specifically mentioning the crucial role that Qatar is playing. And it does come as, as time, is, time is ticking. There's a stark warning this morning from the UN Relief and Works Agency, which says that they are going to have to shut down all operations in Gaza, all humanitarian operations by tonight because of lack of fuel, right? This crucial thing that has been at the heart of any negotiations and also the humanitarian catastrophe on the ground. Six hospitals inside Gaza have already shut down because of a shortage of fuel, right? They've run out of even the fuel needed to run backup generators. That's according to the World Health Organization. The IDF, though, says there are 132,000 gallons of fuel in Gaza. They say they've got complete visibility on that. It comes after the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, said that Hamas's attacks on Israel on October 7th, quote, did not happen in a vacuum. And that statement alone caused incredible ire in Israel. Israel's ambassador to the UN said that he will now block all visas for United Nations officials to Israel. Give you a sense of how tightened the tensions are and enter into that Erdogan saying Hamas is not a terrorist organization, but one of liberation. CNN's Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward joins us live from Cairo. And Clarissa, what more are you learning today? Well, Aaron, uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Erdogan saying that about Hamas, because I do think that when you talk to people across that this region, that you see that reflected a lot. I spoke to one person in Egypt who described Hamas as lions, uh, meaning that they are brave warriors. And what you're seeing is with every day of this bombardment in Gaza, people are being kind of pushed towards more extreme positions. The images that they are seeing day in and day out of children's bodies being taken from the rubble are resulting in such an outcry of anguish, such feelings of impotence, and really the fear is uh, from leaders in the region that you're going to see explosions of violence, that you are going to see more terrorism. We heard those comments that you mentioned from the UN Secretary General basically calling Israel's airstrikes on Gaza collective punishment, saying that this didn't, these horrendous attacks on October 7th didn't come out of a vacuum. He said the Palestinian people to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Uh, he did go on to say that, of course, the grievances of the Palestinians do not in any way, shape or form justify uh, the appalling, what he called appalling attacks by Hamas. But those comments being met uh, by Israeli officials with fiery calls 
uh, for the Secretary General's resignation. The Secretary General also mentioned the fact that they have lost more than 35 UN employees inside Gaza as a result of the bombardment. And importantly, as you point out, uh, UNRWA, which is the agency inside, the UN agency inside that deals with Palestinian refugees, has said that they will not be able to continue their operations any longer. Uh, from tonight. This is in line with what we are hearing from doctors. They are basically saying today is D-Day. The WHO says eight uh, hospitals are already non-operational because they have run out of fuel. Two are only operating at partial capacity. Yeah. One doctor at the main hospital in Gaza City, Al-Shifa, is saying that his hospital will become a mass grave if they do not get fuel soon. But as you noted as well, there's this continuous back and forth. Yesterday at one stage, the IDF came out and said they were going to try to let fuel in and to create a mechanism to ensure that it doesn't get taken by Hamas and used for military purposes. Then a few hours later, they appealed to dial back on that and said no fuel is getting in. So very clear that fuel is at the center both of the humanitarian crisis, but also a key point in these ongoing negotiations, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Israel saying they've got 132,000 gallons, uh, essentially saying that there's some crying wolf going on on the actual time clock ticking. I mean, this is the back and forth that we are all But just watching to give you some time, perspective there, Aaron, 132,000 liters of fuel, this is, this is not yeah. even a drop in the ocean of, of, of what they would need. Before, they would have close to half a right. million liters of fuel every single day. So the need is just enormous. Yeah. Right. And of course, constant every day. Right. I mean, it's used every day. So you, you draw it down. All right. Clarissa, thanks so much. Clarissa's in Cairo, of course. And Poppy and Phil, back to you. You know, just Aaron, to Clarissa's point that I think is a really important one. We just had Chris Murphy on, Senator Chris Murphy, yeah. who runs sort of the Middle East portion of the Foreign, of Foreign Relations Committee. And he said it's not acceptable for fuel to still be blocked going in. Uh, to Gaza. So you are hearing that from some lawmakers here. Uh, but for now, the United right. States is not directly. Which is a shift. Yeah, yeah it's, a shift. it's a shift for sure. Aaron, we'll get back to you soon. Yeah. Thanks. Well, this morning, House Republicans considering picking their fourth nominee. They have picked their fourth nominee. Will they actually become the speaker? That is the open question. Floor vote expected today. This time, will they make it across the finish line? Also ahead. You'll want to see this. Our Christian Amanpour in an exclusive sit-down with Governor Gavin Newsom of California. He just met with Xi Jinping. What he says about political chaos at home and how it affects the United States' reputation abroad. We're the economic tentpole of the world economy uh, right now, and we're in good hands with President Biden. We are not in good hands with the Republican Party. It's a clown show. They can't manage themselves. We don't deserve a leader like Mike Johnson, but that gummit, um, we're going to get him. And, um, and I think he's going to carry us over the finish line. I think he'll be a giant. He's not very tall phys physically, but, uh, but, but in, the, in these halls, he, he is, uh, you will stand in, in his shadow. That was Congressman Tim Burchett this morning on with us on his party's newest nominee for Speaker of the House, Congressman Mike Johnson from Louisiana. Burchett was one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy from his role in that historic vote after he worked with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown. In just a few hours, the House is going to try again. They're going to hold the floor vote. Lauren Fox is on Capitol Hill. There were so many smiles around uh, Congressman Johnson yesterday. Does that mean this is a lock? 
Well, Poppy, obviously the Republican conference is exhausted right now. This has gone on for longer than three weeks, and a lot of members are very hopeful that Mike Johnson might be the guy who can finally get the 217 votes needed on the floor of the House. A couple things to watch for. There were a couple of holdout members who did not support Johnson in the closed-door vote last night. We're going to be watching very closely because there were three of those members. There were also some attendance issues last night, so we'll be keeping a close eye on whether or not any of those votes are opposed to Johnson. But it's just important to note that there has been such division within the Republican Party because every time they seem to get a candidate behind closed doors, what you saw with Tom Emmer played out with Steve Scalise just a week ago, where there is a candidate who gets the most votes behind closed doors. Then they cannot get 217. Then a more conservative candidate emerges. In the case of Jim Jordan, he couldn't get there. But a lot of people are more optimistic about Mike Johnson. And one thing I thought was really interesting is Representative Lawler told our colleague Manu Raju that he clearly thought that ousting McCarthy was a very dumb decision for the Republican conference. But he said he did think he could support Mike Johnson. He said that it was time to move on. And I just think that that is the sentiment among so many members. Now, so many things can change in the course of just four hours before members go to the floor for a vote at noon. But I just think there's certainly momentum. There's a lot of feeling that Mike Johnson is the guy for the job. And despite the fact he doesn't have a ton of policy experience, there is an expectation that he could clinch the, the speakership today. You know, Lauren, not to dump cold water on the UNITY moment that Republicans appear to be having for apparently maybe clearing the absolute lowest bar for a majority to clear. There's a ton of work that needs to be done in a very compressed time window. We spoke to House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries a short time ago about Johnson becoming the next speaker. This is what he said. I don't know uh, Mike Johnson well. Based on his track record, he clears, appears to be uh, an extreme right wing ideologue and House Democrats will push back aggressively against that. However, at the same period of time, we've said from the very beginning of this Congress and demonstrated that we are ready, willing and able uh, to find common ground with our Republican colleagues in order to advance bipartisan solutions to solve problems for hardworking American taxpayers. And all Mike Johnson will need to do uh, is to meet us in a bipartisan way in that fashion and we'll be able to work together whenever and wherever possible. That idea of all Mike Johnson would have to do is the reason Kevin McCarthy is no longer speaker. So how is this actually going to work? Yeah, I think that that is the huge question on the table right now, Phil, is how is he going to legislate? Because he has a government funding deadline coming up on November 17th. It's also not clear how he's going to handle that $105 billion supplemental request from the White House to fund not just Israel aid, but also aid for Ukraine. He was pushed on whether or not he would bring that to the floor yesterday. He said last night that it was not a time to have a policy discussion. But just to remind people back home, there is not going to be a lot of time to learn in the job, you're going to really have to hit the ground running. The other thing that I think is so important to keep in mind is that when you're a rank and file member, you don't have a large staff if you're in the House of Representatives. If you are in leadership, you are going to have to build out your coalition, your staff. That is going to take a little bit of time, and there's just not that much time to avoid a government shutdown. So that is going to be the big question moving forward, Phil. A lot to do in 23 days. Lauren Fox, as always, thank you.
So the big question is, for a lot of people at least, who is Mike Johnson exactly? And that's a fair question to some degree. He's elected the House in 2016. He is a social conservative and has been that way since he was a lawyer before joining the state legislature in Louisiana and then becoming a member of the House. Argued, in fact, in front of the Supreme Court. Currently, the vice chair of the House Republican Conference used to be the chairman of the very powerful and sizable Republican Study Committee. But one of the issues that I think people may not recognize is the role he played in 2020 in terms of supporting Donald Trump's efforts to overturn Joe Biden's victory. In fact, it was a critical role. He was the one who actually drafted the House Republican legal brief signed by 126 Republicans that supported the Texas lawsuit to try and overturn the electoral results of four states. Not only did he ask members to play a role in it, He actually is the name on the amicus brief that was submitted. But it wasn't just the fact that he was a lawyer and had constitutional law background that made him want to get involved in this. He was an actual lobbyist from a personal email account of Mike Johnson sending an email to every single member of the House Republican Conference asking them to support the brief and also making very clear that Trump, quote, said he will be anxiously awaiting the final list of Republicans that signed on to review. It was something that infuriated some of the moderate Republicans at the time. But it was something that was very clearly driven by the former president. Back in December 9th, 2020, Trump making clear that he wanted uh, intervention into and support of the Texas case. He also was talking to Mike Johnson. Johnson tweeting Trump called him this morning, said that they were supportive of this, that this was the big one in terms of the Texas lawsuit. Obviously, it was not. It was thrown out by the Supreme Court. Trump did not officially throw his support behind Mike Johnson, but he did say he was supportive of Johnson, clearly not running against him like he did with Tom Emmer. As for where Johnson stands now on these issues and where the Republican conference is, well, last night was a pretty good window. How dare you ask about that thing that you did? They didn't like that question. No. A critical question. It's where the Republican House Republican Conference is. Can we get to some great news this morning? Please. We want to welcome a new member of the CNN This Morning family, Graham Silver. Best news. Best news. Born on Friday morning, weighing six pounds, 10 ounces, clearly getting an early start to his day, which we can all relate to. His dad, Aaron Silverman, is one of our senior broadcast producers. He works late nights putting our show together. Mom Kate, baby Graham, doing well, and we are sending them all our love. Huge congratulations. The best. At least you're used to not sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Two two parents, you know. Yeah, experience. Well, there are new details this morning about the off-duty pilot accused of trying to cut the power on an Alaska Airlines flight. He denied taking any medication, but what he says he did take, that's ahead. And the Queen of Jordan speaking to our Christian Amanpour in an exclusive interview about what she calls a dangerous double standard in the West's support of Israel. Yes, there was the shock and there is the condemnation. But why isn't there equal condemnation to what is happening now? Israel is rejecting calls for ceasefire as it launches large-scale attacks on Gaza. The bombardment coming just hours after the head of the United Nations called Israel's airstrikes, quote, collective punishment of the Palestinian people and demanded an immediate ceasefire at a contentious Security Council meeting that was met with anger from Israel's foreign minister. The humanitarian crisis is deepening for the roughly 2 million civilians who remain trapped in Gaza 
United Nations Relief Agency inside the territory says that it needs to shut down today if it doesn't receive more fuel. CNN's chief international anchor Christian Amanpour just sat down with Jordan's Queen Rania, who is of Palestinian descent, to discuss the situation in Israel and how it's being handled. When October 7th happened, the world immediately and unequivocally uh, stood by Israel and uh, its right to defend itself and condemned uh, the attacks that happened. But when we, what we're seeing the last couple of weeks, we have, we're seeing silence in the world. Um, you know, countries have stopped just expressing concern or acknowledging the casualties, but always with a preface of declaration of support uh, for Israel. And, you know, are we being told that it is wrong to kill a, a family, an entire family at gunpoint, but it's okay to shell them to death? Christian Amapour joins us now. It's a fascinating interview. I think Poppy and I have been talking about this with one another and anybody else who's been on set for the better part of this morning. What was your primary takeaway from it? The primary takeaway is that she is expressing exactly what the rest of the world thinks. The, 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 the world in which the Muslims and many, many other parts of, of the world believe that there is, as she said, a glaring double standard. And that is what message she was trying to get ahead. Because she was saying even as a mother, you know, of course it was unbearable to see what happened uh, in, in Israel on October 7th, but it is also unbearable to see what's happening to some 2,000 and children and many, many others inside Gaza under the air campaign right now. And one other thing, I also talked to, right after that interview, I talked to Gershon Baskin. He is the hostage negotiator Israeli who got Gilad Shalit out in 2011. And he said, and I'd just like to just read a little bit of it if I could, because it was very important. He said, we've arrived at such a horrific situation that this must be a wake-up call. Because he was reacting to Queen Rania. He came right after her and he said, Israel cannot keep another people occupied for 56 years and expect peace. You cannot lock two million people up in open air prison and expect them to be quiet. And for the Palestinians, it should be a wake up call that if you support radical fanatic leaders and refuse to recognize the other people living there, you also are going to be suffering because of this. So I found that whole conversation really fascinating. Yeah. I'm really glad you read that, Christiane. And one of the parts of the interview that is extraordinary, I'd urge people to watch all of it, is when she talks uh, from her position as a mother. Here's what she told you. I just want to remind the world that Palestinian mothers love their children just as much as any other mother in the world. The silence is deafening, and to many in our region, it makes the Western world complicit, you know, um, through their support and through the cover that they give Israel, that it is just, uh, it's right to defend itself. Many in the Arab world are looking at the Western world as not just tolerating this, but as aiding and abetting it. Those words, complicit and aiding and abetting, striking. Striking, but, but, but true in that part of the world and in many parts, even on campuses in the United States, there's a much more nuanced view. It is very difficult to, you know, to, to try to convince people that two things can be, you know, can, there, there can be two thoughts that the 
savagery of what happened inside Israel on October 7th, but also the death and the killing of children and civilians inside Gaza. That inflames the world and makes them think that there is a double standard. And even you can hear the United States saying there needs to be a humanitarian pause. The Secretary of State has said that for uh, humanitarian uh, supplies. And Gershon, the Israeli, the Israeli negotiator, said that it's ridiculous, this argument about fuel. They can have UN people, they can have, you know, Red Cross, they can have all sorts of people escort these fuel trucks or whatever to where they're actually needed for the civilian population. They don't have to go into Hamas hands if that's the fear. Christiana, I do have to ask, California Governor Gavin Newsom just met with China's leader Xi Jinping, which of course means you just spoke to Gavin Newsom, because of course you did. Uh, I, I'm interested in his assessment of the U.S. relationship with China at the moment. So it's a very important trip because it is a sort of precursor to what is going to be a very important visit to the U.S. next month. The APEC summit is happening in his home state. It's going to be in San Francisco and everybody hopes that Xi Jinping will come and he and President Biden will have a meeting. Governor Newsom wouldn't tell me if Xi had pledged to him that he had come. He said that's up to President Xi to say. But he said that he got the impression that that everybody was trying to lower the temperature. Listen. Did you get a sense from him that this relationship is hurtling towards even a hot war in the next few years over Taiwan or whatever it might be? Or, or what sense did you get from him of a relationship that he wants to have with America going forward? And the fact that we had access to these high-level meetings, I'll be meeting with five provincial governors tomorrow, another extension of this visit, I think is suggestive uh, that we're, in, we're, we're entering, I hope, a new phase, but of a thawing. The last few years have been very stressful. I think it goes to your question. Um, and we've got to turn down the heat. We've got to manage our strategic differences. We've got to reconcile our strategic red lines. Those are well established between our two countries. Uh, but I want to applaud the Biden administration. And on the basis of the engagement I had today uh, with members of the Xi administration, uh, President Xi himself, um, I want to applaud his willingness to reconcile those differences, people-to-people -people exchange. The fact he's meeting with a governor of California at the subnational level, I think, is indicative of a thawing. So I think that's really important and clearly the U U.S. administration had actually been turning their prime focus towards China. So that's an important message that Governor Newsom um, can bring back. And then, of course, he did weigh in on uh, U.S. politics as well, because as we were talking, the whole, you know, conundrum around a House speaker uh, was out playing out. And he tried to assure the Chinese do not take us for patsies. We are not, you know, weak in any way. This is a clown show, as he said, but the U.S. is strong. Christian, thank you on both of those interviews. And you can see Christian's full interview with Governor Newsom. It is tonight on CNN Newsnight, 10 p.m. Christian, thank you. Well, as Christian referenced, the House has been speakerless for more than three years, or three years, three weeks. It's We're felt like three yet, years. So. That could change in just hours uh, as the chamber heads to the floor for a vote at noon. All right, we have new details about the off-duty pilot accused of attempting to shut down the engines on that Alaska Airlines plane mid-flight. Court documents show Joseph Emerson said he took magic mushrooms 48 hours before that and thought he was dreaming. He is now facing 83 counts of attempted murder. Once the crew quickly subdued Emerson and took him off the plane, he also tried out of the cockpit. He also tried to open the emergency exit during landing. 
Emerson says he was having a nervous breakdown and had not slept in 40 hours. Also this morning, Hurricane Otis has made landfall in Mexico as a powerful Category 5 storm. The National Hurricane Center says Otis slammed into Mexico's west coast near Acapulco overnight with sustained winds of 165 miles per hour. Catastrophic damage is expected around the point of landfall. According to NOAA, Otis is the first Category 5 hurricane to ever make landfall on North America's Pacific coast. A significant deal uh, just announced from Bud Light. The beer sold by Anheuser-Busch will become the official sponsor of... The UFC financial terms of the deal not revealed, but according to Bloomberg, it is the UFC's biggest sponsorship yet. It follows a sales slump for the company thanks to some backlash following their partnership with a transgender influencer. And a legend has passed away. Actor Richard Roundtree has died at the age of 81. He is best known, of course, for his performance in the tough-talking Private Eye in the 1971 movie Shaft. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. His career spanned five decades with over 150 screen credits. One of the best. CNN News Central starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.